quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off today. Sarah Seidner is with us. Let's get things started with five things to know for this Friday, September 22nd. Eight days. 18 hours until the government shuts down, and instead of working through the weekend to come up with a solution, us Republican lawmakers are heading home. The entire House is heading home. All right, migrant crossings on the southern border approaching record levels, with nearly 9,000 people trying to cross in just a single day. New details this morning about what may have caused a bus carrying a high school marching band to crash. Officials say a front tire failed. Two adults have died. At least five children are now in critical condition. And a brand new CNN poll out just moments ago shows President Biden holds a 12-point lead over former President Trump in New Hampshire. We're watching two strikes. As you know, writers will go back to the negotiating table with the studios today after a marathon session ended without a deal overnight. And the big three automakers brace for strikes against them to expand in just hours. CNN This Morning starts right now. I wish we could start with better news, but here we Can are. Can we start with good news, though? It's Friday. It's, fr- okay. it's Friday. Right. You're hanging out. This is a good thing. Uh, happy Friday to everyone, <laughs> unless you're a member of the House Republican Conference, because... Good point. Yikes. Things are not going well. This morning, a government shutdown is looking more likely than ever. Speaker Kevin McCarthy has sent lawmakers home for a long weekend, even though there are only eight days left until funding will run out. It comes after another epic failure for McCarthy on the House floor, as he continues to struggle with a GOP rebellion. Now, conservative hardliners once again tanked his defense spending bill second time in just three days, making it clear it does not have enough Republican votes to move forward on that bill or to prevent a shutdown altogether. It's frustrating in the sense that I don't understand why anybody votes against bringing the idea and having the debate. And then you got all the amendments if you don't like the bill. This is a whole new concept of individuals that just want to burn the whole place down. It, it doesn't work. Mm. President Biden is blasting House Republicans for leaving Washington at such a critical moment. On X, formerly known as Twitter, he writes, quote, Last time there was a government shutdown, 800,000 Americans were furloughed or worked without pay. But enjoy your weekend. Senior congressional correspondent Lauren Fox is live for us in Washington. Um, can you, I'm sorry, like I'm trying to figure out what the plan is, what the pathway is, what they're doing today, what they may do on Tuesday. Is there an outcome anywhere in sight? Well, welcome to the club, Phil. It's what we've all <laughs> been trying to figure out for the last couple of weeks since lawmakers returned from their August recess. Right now, the plan is, and wait for it, they are going to try to pass 
11 individual spending bills in just eight days before a government shutdown. All bills, we should mention, that would be dead on arrival in the United States Senate. But they have abandoned that plan for a short-term stopgap measure because there were so many conservatives who were opposed to it and made clear to the Speaker that they would never get to yes on a short-term spending bill known as a continuing resolution. So what they are doing now is trying to pass these individual appropriations bills. But we should point out, One of those bills failed on the floor for the second time yesterday. A procedural step went up in flames because there were conservatives who voted down advancing the measure. So right now, Kevin McCarthy has a problem because he has a right flank that doesn't seem to be willing to vote for anything. And I asked a number of members yesterday, at this point, is there just a coalition in the House that wants to embarrass House Speaker Kevin McCarthy? And the argument I got from some members is, They'll get to yes on something. They have individual issues. But trying to find a way where your conservatives and your moderates can all agree, that's a problem. Here are two of those members, Matt Gates and Lawler, talking about their different views of what's happening right now. There will not be sufficient Republican votes for a continuing resolution. Now, if we've got some of these moderate Republicans who want to go and join up with the Democrats, they will be signing their own political death warrant and they will be handing it to their executioner. I am not going to be party to a shutdown. It does not serve a purpose. At the end of the day, uh, any final bill is going to be bipartisan. Uh, And if somebody doesn't realize that, uh, they're truly clueless. And rank and file members have left Washington, but the House Rules Committee is going to meet today to try to kick off that process of voting on these individual spending bills. But again, it is such a last minute gambit. And given the fact that there are only eight days, it's not likely to go well. Bill. Yeah, Lauren, look, we're talking about dysfunction. I think to some degree this country is numb to dysfunction on Capitol Hill over the last decade plus. This is a very different level of bad when it comes to dysfunction. But it's also coming at a really critical moment. I was hoping you could step back a little bit and start with this, what President Volodymyr Zelensky said last night as he was leaving Washington. Take a listen. We addressed all Americans, political leaders, members of Congress, and ordinary Americans who have done so many extraordinary things. Thank you, United States. Thank you, America. And Lauren, the reason I wanted to play that is Zelensky was on Capitol Hill yesterday, went to the White House as well, as well as the Pentagon. This dysfunction, this fight, this intra-party warfare inside the Republican conference is bigger than just Congress being bad at its job, which everyone is very used to. This dysfunction lays bare very dramatic, uh, I think, geopolitical consequences to some degree as well. Yeah, Phil, and I think it's important to remind people back home that while some public support for Ukraine funding has slipped over the last year, you cannot deny that reality, there is still strong bipartisan support, likely in the House of Representatives, to pass a Ukraine supplemental bill to try to get them the money that they need. But it is up to one man, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, to decide to put that on the floor. And if yesterday was any indication of where he's at, he feels like he has to assuage his right flank right now at every turn. I mean, he didn't even walk Zelensky into the meeting in the House of Representatives. That was done by Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader. And just to contrast that with the pictures of Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell walking flanking Zelensky as they went into the Senate chamber for their meeting with members of Congress. So it just gives you a sense that this is up to Kevin McCarthy 
and he is not there yet. I pushed him repeatedly yesterday on if he would commit to putting this money on the floor. He said they got to get their fiscal house in order first and that there are other priorities to focus on right now. He would not make that commitment because he knows it could mean the end of his speakership if he took that step. So it's such critical context. Lauren Fox, great reporting as always. Thank you. All right. This morning, two people are dead, including a toddler, as migrant crossings at the southern border soar to near record levels now. Officials found both bodies in the Rio Grande near Eagle Pass, Texas. They say the three-year-old boy was swept away by the river's current while traveling with his family. This as U.S. Border Patrol apprehensions have surged to more than 8,600 over the last 24 hours. That is double the daily encounters after Title 42 restrictions were lifted In May, officials list the busiest sectors as Del Rio, El Paso, the Rio Grande Valley, and Tucson. Each has faced more than 1,000 encounters in a day. Now, the mayor of Eagle Pass, Texas, is expressing his frustration that the Biden administration has yet to offer any help. Nobody has bothered to call me, anyone in the city staff saying, hey, this is the federal government. We know what you're going through. We're worried about you. This is our plan of action. Nothing. We're here abandoned. We're on the border. We're asking for help. This is unacceptable. Please just enforce the laws that are on the books. Mayor Rolando Salinas declared a state of emergency this week as migrant crossings are overwhelming federal resources and the community's only shelter. Also new overnight, we are learning new details about that horrific high school bus accident in New York. Two adults were killed and at least 40 teens were injured after a bus full of students on their way to band camp tumbled down a 50-foot ravine about 75 miles north of New York City. New York Governor Kathy Hochul expressed her grief at a briefing near the crash site. But there's a lot of families that need some love tonight. And we extend that from 20 million New Yorkers who all know how much we cherish our children, our adults, our band leaders, and life will be a little bit emptier without them. So let's keep them in our prayers. That bus was one of six headed from Long Island to a band camp event in Pennsylvania. New York State Police and the NTSB are still investigating, but officials say a faulty front tire may have contributed to the crash. We will have a live report from the scene next hour. All right. New developments this morning in the strikes that are bringing two big American industries to a halt. Today, Hollywood studio executives will meet with striking writers for a third straight day after marathon talks ended without a deal overnight. A source tells CNN progress, though, was made. And the United Auto Workers strike. We could see more employees walking off the job in just hours from now. The head of the union says more strikes against General Motors, Ford and Stellantis could start at noon, unless serious progress is made in those negotiations. We're covering both strikes this morning. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich is standing by with the latest on the auto workers talks. But first, we're going to go to Camilla Bernal, who is in Los Angeles. Can you give us a sense of where the talks are right now in the writer's strike? Hey, Sarah. Well, yes, progress was made, but we still don't have a deal. So we need more time. That's why you're going to see the four heads of these studios at the negotiating table again. That is the leaders of Warner Brothers Discovery, our parent company, NBC Universal, Netflix and Disney. And they will go back today to try to come to an agreement. I've talked to writers who tell me that they are encouraged by seeing these leaders at the table. They're essentially just holding their breath and just paying 
patiently waiting to see if they're able to come to an agreement today. But one writer I talked to told me, look, I understand that it's going to take time because these are difficult issues here. They're fighting for their wages, specifically uh, residuals when it comes to streaming. And they're very focused on artificial intelligence as well. What they're saying is that it's people, the writers that need to write these scripts and not the machines. And so what WGA is saying is that they're going to come together. They're asking as many members as possible to go out to the picket lines today. And they're encouraged, but they're also a bit skeptical. They're waiting to see exactly what happens. Here is one of the strike leaders and what she had to say. I think we've gotten our hopes up so many times, especially the writers. I think it's uh, it's hard it's hard to say until you know a deal's actually set and done. I think it's a great sign, but uh, you know until a contract's set and done, you know it's hard to say. And the reality is that people want to go back to work. It has been very difficult for a lot of these union members without work. Uh, in general, we're saying we're talking about more than five billion dollars in terms of the economic impact of this strike. It is people who are struggling to pay their rent, just struggling to put food on the table. And so it has been difficult and they do want an agreement. But we'll have to wait and see what happens at the negotiating table today, Sarah. Yes, and people should know it's having a huge impact, not just Hollywood, but in places like New York and Atlanta. There's a lot of places and all the surrounding businesses like catering that need their work to begin. Thank you so much, Camilla. Phil? Well, Sarah, from one major labor dispute to another, the auto worker strike, uh, Vanessa Yurkevich is joining me now. And Vanessa, you've been on the ground there uh, for several days. You've been talking to your sources. You've been talking to folks that are on the picket line right now. There's a new offer on the table uh, there's a deadline that everybody's looking at right now in a few hours. Where do things stand? Yeah, it's a new deadline, essentially. We know that at least Stellantis and General Motors have offered two new deals to the union. We know that all three automakers met with the union at the main bargaining tables. However, we have not heard about a lot of progress. We even got a statement from General Motors who said that they believe no matter what they put on the table, that the union was going to strike anyways. So not looking good. But at 10 a.m., we will hear from UAW President Sean Fain, who will announce possible targeted strikes at other plants around the country. Could be one automaker, could be multiple automakers. Right now, there are less than 13,000 members on strike. But Sean Fain has an arsenal of 145,000 members that he could send out at any time. And we know that there's a ripple effect from this, right? When you send out striking workers, the big three have announced that they've had to lay off other workers because those jobs no longer become part of the supply chain. So General Motors idling 2,000 workers, Ford 600 workers, and Stellantis 68 people laid off immediately with 300 more to come. So as these targeted strikes increase, you're going to see these ripple effects of layoffs continue to happen. These numbers will grow if there's more targeted strikes. And it's been strategic and they've intentionally Very. tried to kept, keep things quiet. We will get more information in just a couple of hours. You've been on the ground. You've been talking to people. You know what's actually happening. Vanessa, great reporting. Thank you. Thank you. All right. New this morning. Some good poll numbers for President Biden. Brand new CNN polling shows how he's doing in New Hampshire and how he matches up against potential opponents. That is coming up next. And Ukraine's President Zelensky gets a mixed reception during his visit to Washington. What that means for that funding fight that lies ahead. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. May your day be peaceful and calm. <laughs> Look at that beautiful shot of the sunrise at 618 over New York. It can't get more glorious. Now to the bad news. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, we'll try to keep it light. A I like bit. that energy, though. I like that. <laughs> like it's it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful shot, and there's still a lot of mess out there, and we're going to get mess. into it. But yeah, focus on the beautiful shot. But first, here. this is just into the CNN brand new poll out on President Biden's reelection chances in New Hampshire. It shows Biden with a 12 point advantage over Donald Trump in a hypothetical rematch. 52 to 40 are the numbers there. That's a much wider margin than the national polls, which have shown the two are neck and neck in the race. Let's get straight to CNN political director, David Chalian. Uh, first of all, I know you're going to go through this poll for us. What does what President Biden support among independents, a very important group uh, in that state? It's a good question. Also, chances of my day being peaceful and calm are zero. But I, <laughs> I, I, I do want to point out, you noted that uh, Biden versus Trump matchup there. And you're right to note, he does have a bigger lead than he does nationally. He actually bests every single Republican we tested him against, uh, which is good news for Joe Biden. Only Donald Trump, does he, does he actually get above 50%, Sarah? You noted the party breakdown in the results. So take a look here. Among Democrats, one of the reasons why Joe Biden's doing so well against Donald Trump, he's got near universal support of his own kind. 94% of Democrats are with Trump. You asked about independence. Interestingly, Joe Biden is losing independence in this poll to Donald Trump by six percentage points. But because he's got near universal support with Democrats and because... Donald Trump is performing at 79% support among his own Republicans. This overwhelms the independent deficit that Biden has and is what is putting Biden ahead of Trump in this key state. Um, take a look here at positives and negatives. These are both candidates that these New Hampshire voters are not going to feel great about if either one of them gets reelected. 56% say they will have a negative feeling if Joe Biden is elected president. 62% more would have a negative feeling if Donald Trump is elected president. And when you look at their overall favorable, unfavorable, 
These are unpopular guys. Joe Biden in New Hampshire is at 35% favorable, 53% unfavorable. Donald Trump, though, performs worse. He's down at 30% favorable, 62% unfavorable. So you see net negative for Joe Biden is 18 points. Net negative for Donald Trump is 32 points. Overall approval rating in New Hampshire, Joe Biden at 46%. That is higher than we see nationally. He's hovering around 39, 40% nationally. So he is performing better overall New Hampshire, which means New Hampshire may fall off sort of a true battleground state and maybe be one of those lean blue states on the map as we get into the electoral college math. You know, David, if, if you look at some of the state-level special elections in New Hampshire, the numbers probably shouldn't be that surprising. Democrats have flipped a few seats, have overperformed in these special elections. But I've been told for the last several months that because of the new calendar on primaries, because of what the DNC did uh, last year, or a couple months ago, I guess, uh, that New Hampshire is going to be very, very angry, and this was going to hurt President Biden. Is that true here? Well, clearly, that's not showing up among Democrats, Phil. Uh, take a look at our brand new poll numbers among likely Democratic primary voters in New Hampshire. Joe Biden's running away with it. He's at 78% support. Robert Kennedy is at 9%. Marion Williamson is at 6%. To your point, though, about Biden and his team at the DNC changing the rules and wanting South Carolina to go first and leapfrog New Hampshire, we asked folks, well, if that's the case and Biden's not on the ballot, what would you do? And still 69% of New Hampshire primary voting Democrats say they would write in Joe Biden on the ballot. So that does not seem to be hurting him in the, in the Granite State, Phil. That's really interesting. interesting. David Chalian, as always, my friend, thank you. Thanks, guys. Let's bring in Bloomberg Washington correspondent Emery Horton and CNN political commentator and political anchor for Spectrum News, Errol Lewis. Um, Emery, I want to start with you. you know, we've, there has been so much that has come out in terms of numbers on the national level. Yeah. Um, which it's 14, 15 months out. It's early. We can all say that where Democrats have been kind of freaking out to <laughs> be kind about it. These numbers, they're not amazing, but New Hampshire's always a state that Republicans think they've got a shot in. 12 points, that's, that's big. Yeah, it is big. And also when you look at the likes of your latest CNN poll about the Republican GOP primary, you have people like Nikki Haley now starting to come up in New Hampshire. And there was another CNN poll that showed that she would be a challenger that can actually beat President Biden in a general election. She is someone who the Biden camp and the Trump camp are quite concerned about. Her polls has risen since the debate. She brought in a lot of money post that debate performance. We'll see how she does next week. Um, but that is concerning in a place like New Hampshire for Democrats. Um, speaking of Nikki Haley, um, she is gaining momentum, as you just heard Anne-Marie say, and I, I wanted to take a look at this. She is set to deliver this big economic speech later on today that people will be paying attention to. Um, and let's take a listen to how she sort of laid into Congress, that she went after Congress over the looming government shutdown, which a lot of Americans see as just complete ineptness on the part of Congress. Here's what she said. They have got to start working. You hear all of this about closing down, you know, shutting down government. They don't get to decide that. Their job is to keep government open. Their job is to cut spending. Their job is to get it done. Get in a room and figure it out. But do not play games with the American people or the taxpayers. And I will tell you, if they shut down, and we're going to take it a step further, if they don't balance a budget, they don't get paid. Um, there you go. I think there might be a lot of people that actually completely agree with that statement. This is your number one job is to keep the government going. 
That's exactly right. I mean, when they have to start limiting hours and access to the Washington Monument and the Statue of Liberty, uh, it really enrages Americans. Nikki Haley, what you just showed is an example of somebody who, if you ask me, is the best raw political talent in that Republican field. I mean, if anybody's going to challenge Donald Trump, she is figuring out how to do it, and the polling is starting to reflect it. You just saw an example why. You can always uh, at least get the attention of voters on the Republican side and, frankly, the Democratic side, too, if you say, I'm going to run against that inept Washington establishment. That is exactly how she is positioning herself. There's a smaller field than in 2016, She has laid out her case and her scenario, which is that a lot of the candidates go away after the bell rings in 115 days with the Iowa caucuses, and that by the time they get to her sweet spot, her state, South Carolina, in the Republican uh, 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 contest, she's going to expect to be one-on-one running against the Washington establishment in the form of the former president, Donald Trump. That's her scenario. We're not sure it's going to happen. But she is very skilled at sort of making the case that Washington has got to perform. And to the extent that they don't, we need a change. She wants to be that change. So to that point, that's her scenario. How likely is that scenario? And I ask because you make a great point about what New Hampshire was showing for Trump in terms of Mm -hmm. there's clear weakness there, or at least an opening uh, there. There's been some disputes over policy this week. And Nikki Haley herself has started to draw a pretty clear contrast. Take a listen. My thought will be that he was the right president at the right time. He broke things that needed to be broken. He listened and brought in a group of people who felt unheard, like where I grew up, rural South Carolina. He was thin-skinned and easily distracted. He didn't do anything on fiscal policy. And, and really spent a lot of money, and we're all paying the price for it. He used to be good on foreign policy, and now he has started to walk it back and get weak in the knees when it comes to Ukraine. You know, one of the most confusing things of this entire primary has been, I'm sorry, when are you guys going to attack the guy who's up <laughs> by 40 points? That is a pretty expansive and sharp attack delivered in a kind of town hall setting. Yeah, and you're seeing that from a lot of of these primary candidates. And I think it's because they are honing in on policy, not Trump personally, although she did say there that he gets easily easily distracted. distracted. (laughs) But I think this fiscal part is really interesting because she was one of the few in the debate stage to come out and say, this isn't just a Biden problem that we're going after in terms of fiscal um, responsibility, which Republicans want to tout. But she attacked the Trump administration, which added $8 trillion to the national debt. And just this week, we surpassed $33 trillion, a record. And I think she'll hone in on that. But I think you're seeing this a lot from candidates, because whether it's abortion, whether it's fiscal responsibility, whether how Trump characterizes Putin's invasion of Ukraine, this unnerves a lot of them. But if they focus on policy, it seems like they're more comfortable going after the former president. Look, you got to love that jab. It's like something the teacher sends home about your second grader. Easily distracted. <laughs> well, there's a problem here with Donald. Um, but, you know, you, you do have to sort of bring that up because the, the tenor and the tone of his presentation, which is one of his great strengths, is partly why he's up by so many points. And you're going to have to talk about it if you want to get anywhere in this race. I like teacher... Errol voice. <laughs> Donald is easily distracted. Thank you, Thanks, guys. We and appreciate you coming All right. New reporting from ProPublica this morning on Supreme Court Justice Thomas and his ties to the billionaire Koch brothers. One of the reporters who broke this story will bring us the details next. And new overnight, how former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani is falling deeper and deeper into legal debt. We'll have that. Stay with us. 
Well, this morning, Rudy Giuliani is falling deeper and deeper into legal debt after failing to pay more than $132,000 in sanctions to two Georgia election workers. A judge ordered Giuliani to pay the money to Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shea Moss, to offset some of their attorney's fees from their defamation suit against Giuliani. Now, interest is accruing as he continues to not pay. But that's only a small chunk of Giuliani's financial burden as he faces fallout from his work for former President Trump. He will also face more damages in the same case from a jury in December. And just days ago, he was hit with a new lawsuit from his former attorney for more than a million dollars in unpaid legal fees. And just in this morning, ProPublica is out with more new reporting on Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. According to ProPublica, Justice Thomas secretly attended at least two donor events for the Koch Network over the years. That's the powerful conservative political organization supported by the billionaire Koch brothers. As ProPublica points out, quote, that puts Thomas in the extraordinary position of having served as a fundraising draw for a network that has brought cases before the Supreme Court, including one of the most closely watched of the upcoming term. Justice Thomas did not respond to ProPublica's questions for the story, but a spokesperson for the Koch Network told ProPublica the idea attending a couple of events to promote a book or give dinner remarks, as all the justices do, could somehow be undue influence just doesn't hold water. Joining us now, one of the reporters who broke this story for ProPublica, Justin Elliott. We appreciate your time. Um, you guys have done a ton of reporting on this uh, throughout the course of the last several months. On this specifically, I think what's striking to me, and you factor in the response uh, from the Koch Network spokesperson, is like we're, these donors aren't paying to not have dinner with Clarence. Like My assumption is the donors know what they're getting when they put this money, which is why the dinner is set up. Is that kind of your sense of things? Yeah. So, you know, to give you an example where uh, the Koch Network has uh, these annual summits for donors, you have to give at least $100,000 to even get an invite. Some people give millions out in Palm Springs every winter. Um, and Justice Thomas went to one of these uh, summits to have dinner with the donors. Um, and we talked to a lot of Koch Network staffers who said uh, this was seen as basically giving a perk to these high dollar donors. Um, and which, you know, Judges we spoke to, uh, judicial ethics experts said this is just uh, uh, totally beyond the pale in terms of what a judge should be doing. Judges aren't supposed to be involved in either politics or fundraising, and this is essentially both. Um, It's interesting because you've brought some of this to the forefront where Justice Thomas has had to now redo and sort of reveal some of the things that he has done, some of the things and gifts that he has gotten in the past. Um, But your reporter also talks about this 2018 flight to Palm Springs. It's an apparent violation of federal law? Explain that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the themes with the Supreme Court is there's actually, ironically, very few ethics rules. But one of uh, basically the one rule there is, is if you get expensive gifts like private jet flights, you have to disclose them every year on this annual form. Uh, And another theme with uh, Justice Thomas and these stories is secrecy. So this uh, we found that he was flown on this private jet out to Palm Springs for this Coke donor event. It's actually still not clear who paid for that. Uh, Koch's actually said they didn't pay for it. And Justice Thomas didn't, didn't respond to us. But uh, we would know who paid for it if the justice had put it on his annual disclosure form, as uh, the law requires, as you know, many ethics lawyers have told us. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, we reached out to the Supreme Court and Justice Thomas for comment. They didn't respond. Uh, sometimes they respond after the stories come out. So uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, still a lot of unanswered questions there. Sometimes they respond after the stories come out. <laughs> they, they respond typically. Um, why they don't do it on the front end, I've, I've never quite gotten my head around. 
the connection between what the Koch brothers, their network and their allies care about at the Supreme Court. I think that's a a really important Mm -hmm. part of that, especially given the case that's coming up, uh, which is a huge issue for not just the Koch network, but I think conservatives in general. Lay that out. Yeah, one, one thing a lot of people don't understand about the Kochs, I mean, their, their election spending is well known, but they actually also uh, employ lawyers and fund lawsuits in the Supreme Court. Uh, there's a very big case coming up in this upcoming term in the fall or uh, next spring uh, that has to do with the government's power to uh, issue regulations and things like the environment, labor standards, uh, something that um, the Koch network has been you know, long opposed. Um, and so this case coming up, it's called Loper Bright. Uh, it, the Koch network brought it to the Supreme Court. And uh, you know, the, the people we spoke to for this story said uh, Justice Thomas's undisclosed relationship with the Koch network you know, raises questions about whether he can be impartial in a case that the Koch network uh, has brought at the court. So uh, that's another thing that, you know, we'll be watching. You, you reported a lot on, on sort of the monies given to him by Harlan Crow or given, you know, buying the house for his mother that she can live in for the rest of her life rent free. Um, and then you and now you have this information. Is this just a major sort of breach and bungling of the norms that we expect from particularly the Supreme Court justices? Yeah, you know, another aspect of this story is that uh, Harlan Crow, this uh, Texas uh, wealthy political donor uh, who takes Justice Thomas on vacations around the country and around the world, uh, has taken him to these retreats in California where he, where Justice Thomas actually developed this relationship uh, with the Koch brothers at this uh, retreat called the Bohemian Grove. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, what we've been told is that it's just not uh, a common or uh, sort of acceptable thing for judges or justices to be um, accepting this kind of largesse year after year, private jet flights, free vacations, uh, you know, the undisclosed real estate transaction you mentioned. And, and uh, this, you know, what we found in this story is just even more examples of that from, from Harlan Crow. No matter what, often the appearance of influence is just as problematic as actually the influence itself. So thank you so much for joining us. The really good reporting. Thanks. Well, last minute concessions stolen. The new CNN reporting on the hurdles the U.S. government had to jump to bring five Americans home from Iran. We have a great behind the scenes story. And potential tropical cyclone 16 is strengthening off the southeast coast of the United States. The system is now producing tropical storm force winds. The National Hurricane Center says those winds are expected to reach the coast of North Carolina this morning. We will be right back. But American investment in Ukrainian security and global protection of freedom is working 100% every cent. Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky has wrapped up his visit to Washington, where he met with President Biden, lawmakers, Pentagon officials seeking to bolster U.S. support for Ukraine. Zelensky received a warm welcome from President Biden at the White House. No nation can be truly secure in the world if, in fact, we don't stand up and defend the freedom of Ukraine from the face of this Russian brutality and aggression. Now I look forward, Mr. President, to our discussion for the benefit of our nations and the world. When it comes to weapons, we will discuss everything with a special emphasis on air defense. All right, you hear that, but there are some Republican lawmakers, as you know, who were not convinced about the necessity of spending more on the Ukraine war. 
What, what the meeting revealed to me is, is that in the words of, the, of uh, President Zelensky, the, the conflict is a total stalemate. That's what he said, totally frozen. Joining us now is former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, William Taylor. He is the vice president of the Russia and Europe Center at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Thank you, sir, so much for being here. When you see this conflict uh, among, you know, the U.S., the congressmen and congresswomen, um, and you have Zelensky there saying, I cannot get this done without your help. What in the end happens here? What do you see happening to Ukraine? Will this just be a war that just almost a forever war at this point in, a, in this kind of stalemate? Sure, I don't think so. Um, I think, the, number one, <clears throat> there's actually some progress on the ground. There's some progress <clears throat> in the southern part of Ukraine where the Ukrainian forces are slowly grindingly, bloodily, very difficult fighting are, are moving into and pushing the Russians back. That's their goal. And there's some indication that that's having some success. Um, in the last couple of days, we've, we're seeing reports of that, number one. Number two, I expect in the end, this uh, assistance package, like all the previous assistance packages, will be approved by Congress. Um, if you put this to a vote in both houses, you're going to get bipartisan support, good majorities. Um, and the question is how to get it to the vote. But, but smarter people than I will, will get, that, uh, get that done. Th when they actually vote, it will pass. You make a great point in the sense of if it could get to the House floor, the requisite number of votes are there. Period. End of story. In the United States Senate, the Senate Majority Leader, there, Chuck Schumer, is certainly there. There is no uh, bigger supporter uh, or more, I think, bigger defender uh, than Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. And I think that's why the dynamic is so interesting right now, because the tone felt different yesterday than uh, when I was in Washington for when President Zelensky came for his first visit outside of Ukraine at the end of last year for the video uh, remarks to the joint session of Congress uh, a month after the war. That tonal shift, what do you think is behind that? So, Phil, it's been a long time. Um, the Ukrainians have been fighting for 19 months. Um, the United States has been supporting for 19 months. That's a long time to maintain that kind of focus and intensity. The Ukrainians have no choice. They have no choice but to defend themselves. They are under attack every day, every day. Um, and it's up to us to maintain our support. And so I think that, that long-term support, um, I was just in Ukraine uh, last week, um, and it's the same thing. It's a grim determination. When I was there a year ago, it was, uh, it, it was enthusiastic because the counteroffensive was going so well. Now the counteroffensive is going, but it's not as dramatic. And so the grim determination is something we have to support. May I ask you sort of what you think the world is doing as they look at the, the, this sort of fight in the United States over this and as this war has ground on, what the message is? You have McCarthy sort of not wanting to be seen with him on camera, and then suddenly you see this picture of them behind the scenes standing next to each other. He did not let Zelensky uh, speak to Congress. What is the rest of the world doing, and how much of a damage could this cause in seeing that there is infighting in the United States over whether to help fund this war? Well, Sarah, you're exactly right. In the, in the, in the closed meetings, there apparently was, was support, even from, from Mr. McCarthy. Um, Mr. McCall, the, the uh, committee chair, 
uh, Foreign Relations Committee chairs, uh, said that uh, Mr. McCarthy was strong support on mo doing more. Actually, these ATACMs, these long-range missiles, they were pushing the administration to provide those. So there is that. But you're absolutely right. Uh, in public, there is this debate. Um, this is not a surprise. Um, uh, people observing the U.S. government and the U.S. machinations, political machinations, they under people around the world, in particular in Ukraine, they know what's going on here. And again, they, they know they can't win this war um, in the immediate sense without the United States leading this coalition, leading the alliance. So they're counting on this kind of support coming through. Ambassador William Taylor in Ukraine last week. We appreciate uh, your thoughts, sir. Thank you. Thank you, We're, Phil. Thank you so much, sir. We're now getting an inside look into the New York City daycare where this horrible story, infants and toddlers were exposed to fentanyl, what investigators found under a secret trap door there. And we'll take you live to the border where thousands of migrants are crossing into Texas from Mexico. There's been a group of about 50 or so migrants who've been waiting for hours, um, and they've now just started crossing through the Constantino wire, literally dragging each other underneath it uh, and turning themselves into authorities. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. It's a wonderful look at the sun coming up. Clearwater, Florida. I don't have as clever a way of doing it as <laughs> Sarah Seidner did, but she's a Florida Gator, so we'll note that. Uh, exactly. Just put that out there. Thank you for that. Uh, we are now learning new, incredibly interesting behind-the-scenes details about the crucial final days and really hours before the five imprisoned Americans in Iran were brought back home to the United States. Senior State Department officials under condition of anonymity say Tehran threw up roadblocks, tried to force the U.S. to make last-minute concessions, and even stalled the release moments before the five were set to board the plane that the world watched coming into Qatar. CNN State Department reporter Jenny Hansler is joining us now. Uh, you wrote this really interesting piece where you take us through sort of a maze of things that happened. Give us some sense of what actually transpired to get those Americans back home. Well, Sarah, it was really fascinating because we learned the extent to which the Iranians really tried to make life difficult for the U.S. negotiators, for those Qatari interlocutors, even though they had agreed to this deal to bring these Americans home. So Roger Carstens, who's the envoy for hostage affairs, Abram Paley, who's the Iran envoy, they arrived in Doha on Saturday afternoon to facilitate these last-minute logistical details with Qatari and Swiss officials. But they also had to deal with what one official described as a new demand from Iran every hour oh. to either stall the process or make life difficult for the sake of making life difficult. So they weren't necessarily concerned that the deal wouldn't go through. They were confident that Iran would not walk away from especially those funds that had been transferred to Qatar. But there were a lot of just roadblocks. They, the Iranians even threatened to not release the five Americans that they had agreed to release. They said they would not release, you know, all five. They do less than that. And, you know, the U.S. had to continue to tell them we agreed to this deal. That's what you're going to get. And some some of these were even kind of bureaucratic 
delays. At one point when the funds were transferred to Qatar on Monday, the Iranians couldn't find the head of their central bank to sign off on a letter to fully start transferring the prisoners to the airport. And even when they got to that airport, I found this fascinating. The The Iranians tried to make all of the released Americans and the officials who were flying to Doha with them uh, eat lunch there at the Tehran airport before they could take off. And the Qataris, you know, in this what was described as a good diplomatic maneuver, said, we will be very offended if if you don't eat our food on our plane. So we need to go take off. And that finally led to them being wheels up and on their way home. It's a great story. And you've broken so much news on hostage negotiations and Americans that have come home during this administration. Um, Thanks so much for coming on. The stories on CNN.com, you have to read it. The behind the scenes details are just really, really rich and underscored why so many people were so anxious quietly over the course of this trip. Thanks, Jane. Thank you. Well, ahead, what we're learning about the moment a bus carrying 40 students to band camp tumbled down a 50-foot ravine in New York. We're live near the scene. Stay with us. Complete chaos at the Capitol as even more Republicans are revolting against House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. A government shutdown is a misery march. Nobody wins. This is a whole new concept of individuals that just want to burn the whole place down. Any final bill is going to be bipartisan. A large group of migrants in Eagle Pass, Texas, the new epicenter of the border crisis. They say that they've been robbed, attacked by Mexican authorities. He does bear some responsibility for this crisis. This is our plan of action. Nothing. Dozens of students are injured after their bus rolled over on an interstate in Orange County, New York. Two adults were killed in the crash. They believe it was an issue with the front tire of the bus that may have been a contributing factor. The day of terror for 44 passengers. Certainly there are families grieving today. Good morning, everyone. It is Friday. We made it. Sarah Seidner is here with us. We have a lot to get to throughout the course of this hour. We're going to speak to a Republican lawmaker from the House, try and figure out what on earth House Republicans will coalesce behind in just a little bit. But we do want to start with what we're learning about what may have played a factor in that horrific bus crash in New York on Thursday. That crash killed two adults and injured at least 40 high school students on their way to band camp in Pennsylvania. New York State Police now say front tire failure could be to blame. CNN's Omar Jimenez is live in Middletown, New York for us. Omar, what do you know now about the investigation this morning? Yeah, well, Sarah and Phil, preliminarily, state police believe, as you mentioned, that a, an issue with a front tire may have been a factor in this crash. But it's part of why the NTSB is expected to arrive this morning to help with that investigation. Our team went by the crash site and all lanes of that highway are now reopened. But this bus was one of six that was heading from Long Island outside New York City on its way to Greeley, Pennsylvania for a band camp. Forty students on board, four adults. Two people were killed, both of them adults, as we understand, five in critical condition, dozens others injured, but nothing more than bumps and bruises, as we understand. Take a listen to one student who described what he saw. He landed on the side. I had to jump out the window. As soon as I picked my head up, the kid next to me was covered in blood. I saw blood everywhere. Now, I mentioned they were heading to a band camp and two people were killed. One of the people killed was Gina Pelletieri from Massapequa, New York. She was 43 years old and she was the band director at this school, of course, leading this group to the band camp. And Beatrice Ferrari from Farmingdale, New York, she 
was 77 years old. A letter was sent out to students uh, for people who might need counseling or someone to talk to as they try to process what happened in just a matter of moments moving forward. Where the crash site is, they were just about 35 miles or so from their destination, from the city where this band camp was supposed to happen. Uh, it was supposed to be just a fun trip to band camp. And then, of course, that all changed in a matter of moments. Let's go out to the Pelotari and the Ferrari family. Um, they've lost two members of their family, and the students are having to deal with what they saw on this, although you said that many of them just got scrapes and bruises, so that is good news this morning for the 40 students on that bus. Thank you so much, Omar. I appreciate your reporting. Well, also this morning, we're following the growing crisis at the southern border. It has been escalating now for a series of weeks. Now nearly 9,000 migrants crossing the border in just 24 hours as that surge continues to grow. They're overwhelming border towns like Eagle Pass, Texas, and the White House is sending hundreds of additional troops to help. We're seeing desperate scenes like this. Families pulling toddlers and small children under razor wire. The mayor of Eagle Pass has declared a state of emergency. He tells CNN he feels abandoned by the federal government. We've never seen this before. This is not normal. You have all these thousands of people just walking in without any consequence whatsoever. So the word is getting out. Nobody has bothered to call me, anyone in the city staff saying, hey, this is the federal government. We know what you're going through. We're worried about you. This is our plan of action. Nothing. We're here abandoned. We're on the border. We're asking for help. This is drone video of all the migrants detained at the border in Eagle Pass just yesterday. Ed Levandera is live on the ground. Ed, you were live on air during some of that video, the dramatic video we were just watching of of families, children trying to get under or around that razor wire. Um, Where do things stand this morning? It was a difficult scene to watch all of that unfold yesterday. This morning, very quiet here. We're standing in the same area where so many migrants, thousands of migrants, have arrived in recent days to turn themselves in. The mayor of Eagle Pass in that interview also told us uh, last night that he was told by federal border authorities that another 50 to 60,000 people, migrants, are believed to be in southern Mexico. And the question is, where are all of those people going to end up in the days and weeks ahead? Dozens of migrants stand in the Rio Grande, moments after forming a human chain to cross the river and through layers of razor wire trying to reach Eagle Pass, Texas. They tell me they're from Venezuela. Among them, a woman and her toddler. The danger for them is real. Two people, including a three-year-old boy, have drowned this week after being swept away in the river current. But after a nearly 3,000-mile journey, they accept the risk. How long are you going to wait here? Say they're going to wait here until they let them in. The migrants tell us they've been robbed and attacked on the Mexican side of the river. After hours of waiting, the migrants figure out a way to crawl under the razor wire. In a surreal scene, one man instantly apologized. They wanted to apologize for crossing illegally into the U.S. and uh, that they're begging and asking for mercy, but to understand that they're coming from a country where they're persecuted um, and they feel like if they were were to be returned home, they would be killed. The mass influx of migrants is causing tension between federal and state authorities. Texas Governor Greg Abbott posted this video accusing border agents of cutting razor wire at an undisclosed location in Eagle Pass, allowing trapped migrants to turn themselves in. DHS officials refused to comment on the governor's allegation. On Wednesday, about 3,000 migrants crossed in Eagle Pass alone. 
The local sheriff tells us smugglers are preying on the hopes of these migrants, offering to move them to other cities if they can get into the U.S. I know this because we have smugglers from, coming from Houston, Florida, Austin, everywhere to pick up those, those immigrants. There's a connection there. Reasons for this surge vary, but migrants we spoke to say they've grown frustrated with the CBP-1 app that processes formal applications, many waiting months on the Mexican side for an appointment. These two men from Venezuela say they crossed illegally because they're desperate and have been waiting three months for the appointment to request asylum. It's a risk we had to take, he tells me. We know there's a chance we get deported, but it's in God's hands. Phil, now, the, many of the migrants who arrived here at the southern border have traveled through Mexico by train, jumping onto uh, freight trains that come north. Uh, the operator of that train system has suspended uh, those northbound trains, so that might influence uh, the, the number of migrants arriving here at the southern border in, in the days and weeks to come. But many people down here, especially along border communities from Texas to California, simply trying to figure out how long this next this surge is going to last. It is, a, is it a temporary thing? Or is it something that's going to last for days, weeks, if not months? Phil? Yeah, it's a critical question. Ed Lavendera had a great reporting yesterday. Today, please keep us posted. Thank you. This morning, we are watching two of those big strikes that are bringing two big American industries to a standstill. Today, there could soon be more strikes against Detroit's big three automakers. Union heads say more workers will walk off the job at noon unless serious progress is made in those negotiations. And on the West Coast, striking writers and heads of four big Hollywood studios have finished what they call a marathon session of negotiations without being able to reach a deal. But a source tells us that progress was actually made and that they're going to meet again today. CNN's Camilla Bernal is standing by in Los Angeles with the latest on the writer's strike. But first, we are in day eight, I think, of the auto workers' strike. Vanessa Yurkevich is here. Uh, Vanessa, overnight, you had General Motors saying that they put a fifth big record offer on the table where does that stand now? Because the deal has not yet been made. Yeah, no deals yet. The clock is ticking yet again to this additional targeted strike deadline. We expect to hear from UAW President Sean Fain at 10 a.m., where he will announce more targeted strikes with a walkout of those striking members starting at noon. We know that the big three have been negotiating with the union over the past week, but we're not hearing about substantial progress, which is what Sean Fain is looking for. We know that Stellantis and General Motors put new deals on the table, but General Motors saying that they don't feel like anything they put on the table is good enough to meet those demands and that the UAW was going to go on strike regardless. We also have seen that because there are 13,000 workers now on the picket lines, that has had a ripple effect on these companies. The companies have announced General Motors, 2,000 idled workers, Ford, 600 workers laid off, Stellantis, almost 70 workers laid off with 300 more to come. So as these targeted strikes increase, which we expect them to, you're going to see the residual effects of these layoffs. But the only person who knows the plan is Sean Fain. He knows exactly what he's doing. These strikes are targeted 
And we expect to hear about more in the coming hours when he makes this announcement. We've just got a few hours left before this next targeted strike may occur. We don't know where, neither do the companies, which is part of this plan. Um, But you've been on the ground. You've been talking to these workers. We're now uh, more than a week that this strike has gone on. You're talking about layoffs. What is the mood among the workers who are, are out there on the picket line and those who may be joining them? Yeah, there's one camp of people that I've been speaking with that believes that the union should not concede on any of their demands, that they should hold steady. They see that these companies are making billions of dollars in profits. They look at the CEO's pay, which are tens of millions of dollars, and they believe hold steady, do not come down from those initial demands. There's another camp of people that believe that negotiations are about compromise. They have seen these companies come up from their initial wage increases of 10% all the way up to 20% and possibly more at this point. And they believe in order to get a deal, to get them off the picket lines and back to work, that the union will have to negotiate. I've heard that they believe they need to come down into the 30% wage increase. But that's still a large gap, you know, 20 and 30, 35, still a long ways to go. The only person who knows that magic number is Sean Fain, and he will not reveal that to anyone at this point. That's part of the negotiating tactic. That is part of the tactic. We are looking at some of the workers striking there. Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thank you for all your reporting. Phil? You know, Sarah, you go from one labor dispute that's a little more than a week old to another one that's in day 144. That's the writer's strike. And today, Hollywood studios will meet with striking writers for a third straight day after marathon talks ended without a deal overnight. But a source tells us progress was made. CNN's Camila Bernal joins us live from Los Angeles. And Camila, uh, you take some optimism from the fact that they aren't attacking one another, but we don't really know how to define progress. Where do things stand today? I would say that a lot of the writers are hopeful for that progress and are thankful for that progress. They're telling me, look, we know that it's going to take a long time. They're very confident in the WGA negotiators, but they're still skeptical. They say they won't believe it until they see it. They want to see a a deal. And so that's why you're also going to be paying attention to the leaders of these four major studios. We're talking uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, our parent company, Netflix, Disney, NBC Universal. They are now going to be at the table for a third straight day trying to hash this out. And one of the writers I talked to told me, I understand that it's going to take a long time because these issues are complicated. They're fighting for their wages. They're fighting for residuals, especially when it comes to streaming. And they're very focused on artificial intelligence. They want to be the ones writing and not machines. So as you mentioned, Phil, more than 140 days and they're still uh, willing to continue this as long as they get what they've been fighting for over the last couple of months. Uh, They've been out in the picket lines and the union asking them to come out today again, as many people as possible as they continue these negotiations. I want you to listen to what one of the writers said on the picket lines. We all want the strike to be over. Of course we all do. But we are also determined to be out here as long as it takes to get the deal that we need to keep this industry going. And people want to go back to work, not just to save the shows this year or the movies next summer. This is people's livelihood, people who are struggling to pay the rent or to put food on the table. This is sort of a domino effect because it's not just Hollywood. It's many industries that have been impacted by this economically. Yeah, it's a critical point as we enter day three of intensive closed-door negotiations. We'll see if there's a breakthrough. Camila Bernal, thank you. Sarah? Thank you. All right.
A brand new CNN poll shows President Biden beating Donald Trump in a potential rematch in a key battleground state. And a government shutdown is looking a lot more likely as Congress left for the weekend with just eight days left until funding runs out. We're going to talk to Republican Congressman Ryan Zinke about what comes next. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Look at that beautiful picture. Buenos dias from Miami and to Miami. Look at that gorgeous sunrise over the water there. All right, this morning, new CNN polling shows President Biden holding a commanding lead with voters in New Hampshire. In a hypothetical head-to-head matchup, Biden now stands at 52% against former President Trump. They're at 40%. When asked how they would feel about Biden or Trump being elected, Biden leads again with 42 percent feeling positive, but 56 percent feeling negative. And for Donald Trump, it's 37 felt positive and 62 said they had negative feelings. As for their opinion of these two candidates, 35 percent have a favorable opinion of Biden, but 53 percent have an unfavorable opinion. But again, it's worse for Donald Trump as only 30 percent favor him, 62 percent do not. Now, this is where things get a bit tricky for President Biden in New Hampshire. Only 46% say they approve of how he's handling his job as president, but he's still the undeniable frontrunner for the Democratic nomination with 78% compared to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., for example, who's at 9%, and uh, Marianne Williamson at just 6%. Meanwhile, New Hampshire voters don't seem as impressed with Biden's running mate. Only 21% say they feel enthusiastic about Vice President Kamala Harris. 42% say they are satisfied. Phil? Well, down in Washington, a government shutdown feels a lot more likely right now after Republican hardliners tanked a military spending bill. Yesterday, Speaker Kevin McCarthy sent members home for the weekend. There has been no move on a stopgap funding bill. So what is the plan? Republicans will work on individual annual long-term spending bills rather than one big comprehensive one. The trouble is, extremely unlikely to get those bills done by the deadline, which is next Saturday. Even if they did, those conservative measures are dead on arrival in a Democratic-held Senate. Other than that, everything's going great. Joining us now is Republican Congressman from uh, Montana, Ryan Zink. He's a member of that Appropriations Committee. He's been uh, at the center of this process, and and that's kind of where I want to start, because as an appropriator, you understand, A, the work that goes into spending bills, and B, I think the time it takes to reconcile them uh, with the other side to get them to the White House when it's controlled by the opposite party. My sense is the plan now is to pass 11 spending bills. You have eight days. I'm not sure how this doesn't lead to a shutdown. Am I wrong? Well, and you, you look at where we're at. I, you know, as a former Navy SEAL, I can tell you, never go against the troops. And we failed, and I would say Republicans. Remember, we got zero Democrat help as well, but we failed protecting our country with the defense bill. Uh, and you know, the defense bill, I can tell you, is, is important. And right behind it is the, the Homeland Security bill, which is, our, of course, our border. So I, I think our focus right now is to make sure we get the three most important bills across. That's our defense. Uh, secondly, our, our border. And third, make sure we protect our veterans. We get those uh, three across. And I, and I think we, it's, as long as the Senate picks them up, I think we'll avert a shutdown. And let me tell you, as a former secretary, a shutdown is not a good thing. The troops aren't going to get paid. And, and a secretary has a lot of latitude, what he de- deems or he or she deems 
you know, critical and essential. So an administration that wants to do a lot of harm uh, has a lot of latitude. An administration, in my case, I didn't shut down the parks. I kept permits going. So a secretary has a lot of latitude in a shutdown, and we, we do not want to shut down. You know, you make a great point. You have a perspective because you've been in the executive branch during these moments before. These are arguments that have been made to a number of your members who, to some degree, sound like they want a shutdown. They're almost urging a shutdown at this point. Um, why do you think that's the case? Well, you have a few, a handful. Uh, sometimes it's a media hit, et cetera. But, you know, I was sent here to do two things, curb the spending and remove the woke. And we did that. And the defense bill that needs to pass, look, I don't think the defense should be paying for sex change operations and hormone therapy. That's not their job. So, nor do I understand, you know, we, we can't allow the military to atrophy. The bill uh, is the lowest percentage of, of a defense bill in GDP in our history. The Ukraine war is segregated aside because that needs a discussion, uh, a separate discussion. And I think we should have objectives and a plan for Ukraine clearly identified. And the Biden administration needs to deliver that before we spend more money. But the core of the defense needed to pass and it did not. So I, I want to get to Ukraine funding in a second because it, it is kind of a separate, particularly in your conference, it is a separate uh, debate at this point that needs to be reconciled at some point. Um, when the last major deal uh, raised the debt limit, set the spending levels, which you guys have moved away from, uh, passed, you voted against it, but you commended Speaker McCarthy's efforts, his, his ability to get a bipartisan agreement to get the White House to negotiate. What would you do if he ends up having to go to Democrats and say, look, I don't have the votes. I need your help to get out of this jam. Well, you know, clearly, you know, shutting the government down, uh, there's a, a few Republicans, but every Democrat as well. And at the end of the day, what we need to do, I think, focus on the three, focus on defending our country, focus on securing our border. And you see where the crisis is and focusing on keeping our word with our veterans. I think we focus on those, get them to the Senate and then make sure we, we do our job here is pass the rest of the appropriation bills. Now I'm on appropriations. We're going to get those done next week. But, right. but if we get them done and they go and they go to the floor and, and a few decide they're not going to put up any appropriations, then I guess they're going to live with sex change operations and make sure our troops don't get paid. To, to the initial point you made, the Democrats aren't voting for this either. I mean, I think the deal that I was pointing to was a deal that McCarthy agreed to that set right. a spending level that Republicans walked away from. This was the House Democratic whip yesterday when I was asking her about this. Take a listen. All of this is complete nonsense, but it's a dangerous game. Back in June, he made a deal with the president of the United States after taking the economy hostage, catering to these extremists and their agenda of burning government down. And what he did then was totally roll it back. I mean, I think that's a difficulty right now. There was a deal. And well, put the partisan fireworks aside, there was an agreement, a bipartisan agreement. And again, you voted against it, but you committed McCarthy for reaching that agreement. Um, I, I, how is this doesn't seem to be on anybody but the Republican conference? Well, here's the here's the irony of it. Uh, the deal that was struck with McCarthy, the appropriation bills, which we all said we'd do. We'd, we'd go to the, the 12 appropriation bills. We'd have open amendments. We'd work on them. We'd curb the spending. Those appropriation bills are actually lower than than what was agreed upon. Uh, in, in, in some cases, significantly lower. So you're, you're, you're right. I, uh, when the goal line changes and, and you have a few people that won't vote for anything, 
But I, I think at the end of the day, we're, we're going to get together because we, I think people understand the consequence. And, and it's right to do to our job. Congress needs to do the job. And the, and the last point is, look, we're, we're, we're talking about 25% of the budget with half of the defense. Uh, we're not even talking about the big problem is on the 75% of the budget. And on both sides of the aisle, there's a grant that we need to get back to appropriating all sides of the budget to make sure that we prioritize the spending where it should be going and, and make it the hard decisions. But Congress has long punted and we need to get back in the game and say, look, we're, we're going we're gonna to look at the entire budget right. and not just argue about 11% or 12%. Um, I do want to ask you before I let you go, uh, President Zelensky was on Capitol Hill yesterday. Uh, he was in the United States for the course of the last week. You mentioned Ukraine funding. You, you think it should be a separate issue, a separate debate. Uh, is there a pathway forward for the $24 well, I, billion dollars of emergency funding that the administration has requested? There is, you know, and, you know, I was a former SEAL commander and I've been to a lot of battles in my life and I have, but I've never been on a mission where I didn't have objectives and a plan. And look, at the highest levels, we don't have a plan. And I don't believe in blank checks. So the President of the United States has to come to Congress and tell us what are the objectives in Ukraine and what's the plan. And I think the American people should deserve that too. I mean, we're tiptoeing into, into a possible nuclear engagement because we don't have a, a, at least a plan in what I've asked. So what are the objectives? What are the plans? And the Congress will step up and make sure that we agree with that and, and, and fund, fund in, in the interest of the United States and, and global security. We will. All right. Congressman Ryan Zinke, a House appropriator. Uh, Got to find a pathway forward. I know you were trying. Uh, we'll, well see how that I'm, all turns out. I'm an optimist. Out. <laughs> yes, you, know, you are. I'm, no, that's, I'm I, an optimist. You know, I appreciate we'll, we'll that as somebody who's covered appropriations for a long time. Sir, I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good weekend. It was a good interview, Phil. All right. Rupert Murdoch stepping down as the chairman of Fox and Fox, or sorry, and News Corp. A look at where his media empire will go from here. We've got some new reporting for you coming up next. Also, a CNN exclusive, more evidence the Coast Guard failing to act on allegations of sexual misconduct, this time involving a captain turned college president. Stay with us. It is the end of an era and a changing of the guard at one of America's most influential companies, media companies, that is. Rupert Murdoch is stepping down as the chairman of Fox and News Corp, the media empire he built more than 70 years ago. Here's how the announcement was made on Fox News yesterday. And we have now some personal news to share with you this morning. Our boss, Rupert Murdoch, is transitioning from chair of our parent company, Fox Corporation. Rupert Murdoch created all of this and so much more across America and the globe. The media mogul said in a statement that he will remain, quote, involved every day and take on the title Chairman Emeritus. Murdoch ta uh, tapped his eldest son the current, to be the current CEO of Fox News, Lachlan Murdoch. He's going to take over both of the companies at this point. Joining us now, CNN senior media analyst and Axios senior media reporter, Sarah Fisher. Your, your uh, article, hot off the presses here, we just got it in. Um, and you, you have an interesting take at the very beginning. We know that Rupert Murdoch is going to have his hands in this still because he said so. Um, but you say that in naming his eldest son, Lachlan, as his successor, Murdoch is 92, has ensured that Fox Corp goes forward and will live on. But maybe not with the same bent, maybe not as conservative uh, as we have been seeing. Explain. 
Well, I think that Lachlan is definitely going to carry Rupert's torch, and he praised his son for being the person to do that, to continue on with the populist fight, taking on what he thinks is the elitist establishment. But the real challenge here is that that is not a forever thing. Rupert Murdoch, at age 92, is leaving his company after he dies to a trust in which four of his six children all have an equal say. Now, we know where Lachlan stands. Of course, he's taking over this company. He shares his father's viewpoints. But do the other three. That's what's going to be the question. And if they don't all come to consensus about the future of the company, it's unclear what the direction is both for Fox Corp and News Corp long term. I mean, to be crystal clear, and I, and I should note, Sarah doesn't actually have a printing press here. Uh, she's actually just reading your digital story, uh, which, which is very good, and you should Thank go find it uh, on Axios. But like, I, f I feel like we know that the other three don't agree with Lachlan. They certainly aren't ideologically aligned with him. Is there any sense that they're aligned from a business perspective? Somewhat. I mean, all of them have incentive to continue growing a financial empire in which they have a 40 percent stake. Right. So they want this business to continue. But the direction that they want it to continue is so different. James Murdoch stepping down on the board of News Corp in 2020, citing differences ideologically with what their editorial board was saying, gives you a sense of where he stands versus his brother. The two sisters are sort of the wild card. And we know that you need a majority. So it's going to need to be, you know, at least three people coming together on the same side here. I think so Sort of the thing I'm watching, though, is that as Lachlan takes over, how is he going to continue Rupert Murdoch's vision for this sort of populist conservative editorial bend, but also in the digital era? You know, in the newspaper era where you had very powerful op-eds and in the cable TV news era where you could have a voice and reach a lot of people, it was easy to carry on that torch. In the digital era, Phil, you know this, it's very different. With streaming now, it's hard for one outlet to command huge, huge, huge attention. It's a very fragmented media environment. And so it's it's going to be curious to see how he lives on that legacy, but in a very different era. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch. They could probably even make a television show uh, based off of it. May have um, also like succession. The irony is not lost on attacking the elites when you are a multi-billionaire. Uh, Sarah Fisher, great reporting. Go read the piece on Axios.com. We appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, a CNN exclusive, a former professor at Coast Guard Academy accused of sexting a cadet in the fallout he's facing now as a college president. As our Pamela Brown continues her investigation into misconduct at the academy. Police finding more drugs under a trapdoor at a Bronx daycare where a one-year-old boy died of a suspected fentanyl overdose. The new details ahead. Now to an update on the death of that one-year-old boy who died of a suspected fentanyl overdose at a Bronx daycare center. Police are now saying they found roughly 8 to 10 kilos of drugs, including fentanyl, under this trap door. The drugs were in the floor under a play area for the children. A grand jury Thursday indicted the daycare center's owners and one other suspect on murder charges. Investigators say they, along with other co-conspirators, ran a fentanyl distribution business out of that daycare. Well, the Senate has launched an inquiry into the Coast Guard's handling of a secret, years-long investigation exposed by CNN. You will remember on this show, our Pamela Brown has done several reports on the investigation dubbed Operation Fouled Anchor that found rapes, sexual assaults, and other misconduct at its academy that had been ignored and at times covered up by high-ranking officials. This morning, Pam has another CNN exclusive. A college president is taking a leave of absence after CNN started asking questions about his past at the Coast Guard Academy, 
where he was accused of exchanging hundreds of sexually suggestive text messages with a student more than a decade ago. CNN chief investigative correspondent Pamela Brown is joining us live now with more. Pamela. Well, good morning to you both. As you know, we've been reporting since June about the Coast Guard's mishandling of allegations of sexual misconduct from the 80s until today. And our new reporting shows yet another case where the Coast Guard didn't hold anyone accountable. Retired Captain Glensel Macy has had a long career that includes being a lawyer, a provost, a captain in the Coast Guard. Now he's the president of Nichols College and said he wants to turn it into the business college of choice for women. But a CNN investigation found Solmazy allegedly sent lewd or suggestive text messages to at least two of his students more than a decade ago when he was a professor at the Coast Guard Academy. Yeah, he operates with complete impunity. He is untouchable. Melissa McCafferty, a former Coast Guard cadet, said when she texted Solmacy after graduation asking for a letter of recommendation for law school, Solmacy said this. Only if you send me pictures. Well, I write you a letter of recommendation. It doesn't take an idiot to figure out that he was insinuating nudes. He then followed up with, and I will never forget this, I've always loved that tattoo on your left foot. To another female student, Solmacy exchanged more than 1,600 text messages, most of which were sexual or flirtatious, according to this internal Coast Guard document obtained by CNN, an alleged offer to give high grades to the cadet in exchange for sexual banter. Listen to what he wrote. Do you love turning me on? You really looked great, and the nails were very hot. You're very precious. I adore you. I really do want you. I am a good boy. No final for the goddess. Coast Guard attorneys learned about the text years later after Solmacy had retired from service. Yet they were so concerned they wrote this 2016 prosecution memo recommending two court-martial charges against Solmacy, including willful dereliction of duty and conduct on becoming an officer. The document states the cadet, who was 20 years younger than Solmacy, denied any sexual contact occurred and appears to have been a willing participant. Solmacy's attorney saying to CNN, that means texts between them were entirely consensual between two of age adults. Yet the memo's conclusion was prosecution appears to be the only proper course of action. Charges were never filed. He would get away with all sorts of um, inappropriate behavior. McCafferty says her interaction with Solmacy went beyond text messages. She says Solmacy harassed her, making sexual comments to her or about her. He made countless comments towards me about my, my body to my boyfriend, to me, to a classroom. He made comments about how I looked in a suit and a pencil skirt and heels. Did you feel like the power differential between the role you had as a cadet and the role he had as a captain impacted how he was treated? Oh, absolutely. I brought it up to multiple people and they told me that he was too powerful and that they could do nothing about it. So Macy retired from the Coast Guard in 2015. My name is Glenn Solmacy. And became an administrator at Bryant University in Rhode Island. The memo warned Solmacy would have access to students for the rest of his career, and if no action was taken, the Coast Guard would be accused of sweeping the case under the rug. Yet that's what the Coast Guard did. It's another example of the agency internally expressing concern about sexual misconduct 
but ultimately failing to act. In June, CNN uncovered a damning investigation that had been kept secret for years. It showed Academy leaders buried dozens of cases of sexual assault. I again apologize to each victim, survivor, their loved ones. As for Melissa McCafferty, she says the culture in the Coast Guard has been one of silencing victims. <laughs> the message was very loud and clear. It was to keep your head down and shut up. And that's what I did, and I regret it. So Macy's attorney told CNN any allegation made by Ms. McCafferty that Mr. Solmacy harassed her is categorically false. Wow, what a story, Pamela. We understand that Solmacy has taken a leave of absence now from his post as president of Nichols College. Is that correct? That's right. After CNN reached out for comment, Nichols College told us that they have launched a third-party investigation into the allegations. So Macy voluntarily took a leave of absence. The Coast Guard told CNN in a statement that is also referring Melissa's allegations to its investigative service. And CNN has learned that investigation has already begun. But Pamela, despite this memo recommending the court-martial charges, the Coast Guard never actually prosecuted Solmacy, correct? Why is that? Yeah, so we don't know about the internal discussions, but that memo that we obtained does discuss how difficult it would be to prosecute Solmacy for a number of reasons, including the statute of limitations. There was no physical contact alleged, and it would be hard to find an impartial jury because Solmacy had so many connections at the Coast Guard. Great reporting as usual. Pamela Brown, appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you. All right. For the past year, CNN's Donny O'Sullivan has been investigating conspiracy theorists who believe President Kennedy and his son are alive and in hiding. To be clear, they are not. But Donny is here and will show us what he has learned. Some incredible reporting here next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. That was a moment almost anyone that was alive at the time remembers that moment to a T. It's been nearly 60 years since President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, fueling, though, decades of conspiracy theories about whether Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and whether he, it was him at all. CNN's Donny O'Sullivan has spent the past year investigating a group who refuses to believe that President Kennedy and his son are dead. They believe that he's alive and in hiding. Donny traveled across the country to find out about the toll conspiracy theories and cults have on families, all for a new episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper that airs this Sunday. Here is a look. One time we went to play tennis and he got a phone call. Jason believed it was Junior calling JFK him. JFK Junior calling him. And this was a, maybe a week before he went to Dallas. Wait, so you're playing tennis with your brother? Yes. And he gets a call. Correct. And he thinks it's JFK Junior. He does. At that point, you're like, there is something seriously wrong here? Yes, but what do you do? CNN's Donny O'Sullivan is joining us now. Wow, Donny. Um, you, you talk to so many of these families who are going through this. What are they saying about how they deal with this and how difficult it might be to pull someone out of this rabbit hole? 
Yeah, and look, I mean, of course, uh, you're dealing with two kind of ends of the spectrum here. One, it's it's so absurd. Uh, it's laughable in terms of the actual beliefs. Um, but, you know, I, I think QAnon, everything else, um, you know, I think we all want to treat it as a joke because it is so absurd. Um, but treating it as a joke, ignoring it, uh, isn't, isn't going to make it go away. Uh, and you saw in that clip there, Erica Vigras, who was um, uh, kind enough to speak to us, uh, her brother uh, was not this like kind of lifelong quack or anything like that. He was had a successful construction business, everything, uh, and began going down this rabbit hole, she thinks, during COVID-19. Uh, and you kind of see there the helplessness. Uh, what do you do if you have somebody coming to your kitchen table every night kind of spouting this nonsense? Uh, because if you tell them they're wrong and they're a fool, you're at risk you? kind of pushing them further yeah. away and further down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Can you explain, and people should really watch uh, the piece on Sunday night, but what is the theory? Like, how, how is this the case and why are so many people locked in on it? Yeah, I mean, it, it changes kind of depending on the day and who you ask. Uh, but the general theme is that uh, they believe JFK Jr. did not die, that he faked his own death, uh, and that he's working with Trump somehow and is going to kind of come back and save uh, the U.S. from an evil cabal. Some also believe that JFK himself is um, potentially alive or was reincarnated. A lot of it kind of has weird biblical uh, overlaps. Uh, look, uh, I mean, you could, you could go down the rabbit hole yourself trying to understand this thing. Right. Uh, taking a step back, though, you know, it's, it's, it all fits into the broader QAnon belief. And, and another step back put, fits into the beliefs of all these election lies that are being pushed. I mean, all these people uh, believe in that stuff. And... You know, they're seeing, you know, famously years ago when, when President Trump was asked to then candidate, Trump, President Trump was asked to uh, denounce QAnon. Uh, he didn't. And those kind of messages these people are getting and that sort of eggs them on. They say, oh, maybe maybe we're on to something here. Yeah, it's an important point to step back that these all connect uh, and that Trump acts like he doesn't know what he's doing when he retweets stuff or Precisely, re yeah. truth stuff, whatever you want to call it. Um, watch this on Sunday night. Donny, excellent work. And you've worked on this for a long time. Um, the entire subject matter. So can't wait to watch. Thanks, Thanks guys. Thank you. And be sure to tune in to that all new episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. It airs Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific only on CNN. Well, it's eight days until the government shuts down. And instead of working through the weekend to come up with a solution, House Republican lawmakers, they went home. Can House Speaker Kevin McCarthy rally his conference to get a deal done before it's too late? Also, another crisis here. Eagle Pass, Texas is under a state of emergency now after a surge of migrants has overwhelmed the border city over the past week. And it's causing big tensions between federal and state authorities in border towns. A live report from that border ahead. This is CNN Breaking News. And we do want to start this hour with breaking news. Ukraine launching a missile attack on Russia's naval headquarters. We're going to show you some video. You can see the smoke rising in this video. This is the city of Sevastopol. It is one of the largest cities in the Ukrainian peninsula of Crimea and was illegally annexed by Moscow's forces in 2014. Russian state media says debris is, quote, scattered for hundreds of meters. Now, Ukrainian officials have not yet commented on the incident. It has been an area uh, and a specific strategic target that Ukrainians have spoken about, talked about over the course of this entire conflict. CNN's Katie Polglaze has more. What do we know at this moment? I know this is breaking and moving quickly. What's your understanding of things on the ground? 
Well, Kaylee, as you can see from that video there, this is a quite major attack on Russia's naval headquarters in that region. That is highly significant and a clear success from the Ukrainian side. And let's not forget, this has happened in just a week of several other major attacks in the Crimea area as well. This is clearly part of a pattern that Ukraine is conducting with increasing frequency. Just yesterday, we were talking about the Saki Air Base as well. Twelve military aircrafts targeted there. Last week, we were also talking about Sevastopol. Again, a port there, a ship repair facility that was targeted. Again, all of this is targeting Russia's infrastructure, the areas that Russia is using to build the war effort that it is conducting in this area. And clearly, the headquarters of its naval fleet is the biggest target of all. You can see in this video here, huge smoke erupting from some of these areas. This is clearly a very alarming sight. And the Sevastopol governor, the Russian-appointed governor in that area, has told people to stay in shelter, stay inside, not go into the city centre. That is clearly an indication that they still see it as quite dangerous. There's also indications that the debris has scattered quite wide as well, about 100 metres around the area. So clearly quite a major attack that we're seeing happening right now. Um, thank you so much for that reporting. We are watching uh, some of the video there where you see those huge plumes of smoke. I'm sure we will get more so we can see the scene uh, where you talk about there's 100 meters of uh, debris sp spread all over the place. Let me uh, go now to retired Colonel and CNN military analyst uh, Cedric Layton, who is joining us uh, now. Uh, talk about the significance of Sevastopol, the headquarters of the Russia's Black Sea Fleet. Uh, it has now been intact, but this is the same place that's been really involved in the blockade of keeping uh, Ukrainian ships from being able to do their job and take their routes. That's exactly right, Sarah. One of the key things about Sevastopol is it's the headquarters of that Black Sea fleet, and it's in that perfect position, as you mentioned, to keep those grain shipments Occurring. So the fact that the Ukrainians are going after this indicates not only are they going after what would normally be called control nodes, uh, such as a headquarters like this, uh, but it's also a statement to the Russians that if they move forward with blocking grain shipments from the Ukrainians, they can actually have some consequences. And the consequences in this case are that their headquarters, their installations are going to be attacked. So this is really upping the ante as far as the Ukrainians are concerned. What they're doing is they're in essence trying to decapitate the Black Sea fleet. They had a, a back at the beginning of the war, we may remember the sinking of the Moskva, the flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Well, this is the headquarters of that flagship, and they're able to uh, to attack it uh, fairly uh, much with impunity, I would say. Colonel Layton, to that point, um, this has long been, I think, a, a strategic focus of the Ukrainian forces. We're now learning um, from uh, the Russian government, the Russian side, that at least one uh, Russian soldier was killed in this attack. Uh, the strategic value of it from a the broader conflict perspective, what does this do for Ukraine? Is this to make people nervous, scared, we can reach you anywhere you are, or does this have a bigger picture uh, effort tied to it? Well, it actually has both implications, Phil. So, yes, we can reach you anywhere is one aspect of what the Ukrainians are doing. The other thing is, is that it's a warning to the Russians that every single thing that they do will meet with a response from the Ukrainians. And from a strategic perspective, if you knock out something like the Black Sea Fleet, uh, their headquarters, then what you're doing is you're making it really difficult for them to exercise uh, command and control over those naval assets. And when they do that, 
uh, it makes it really difficult for the Russians to employ those forces. So we're seeing the Ukrainians with a strategy uh, that in essence involves going after the top echelons of the Russian military and the Russian military echelons that are really impacting them. A lot of those missile strikes uh, that are affecting southern Ukraine come from the Black Sea fleet, from the Black Sea, and those installations there and the ships that are in that sea. And so if those installations and those ships aren't being controlled properly, uh, then that uh, limits the Russians' effectiveness in this war. Senator Layton, thank you so much for giving us that insight. And just again, to, to sort of rewrap, uh, there has been a, a, an attack. It is the naval headquarters uh, in Crimea for Russia. Uh, Ukraine, uh, likely the person that did this, uh, they were able to attack Russia's Black Sea fleet. And we're seeing images from that, huge plumes of smoke. And we're hearing that there is debris spread across 100 meters. We will be giving you updates as soon as we get them from there. And we also know at least one Russian soldier was killed in that attack. We are going to keep our eyes on this and stay on this story throughout the course of the next hour. This is a major strategic target for Ukraine uh, and clearly a continuation of what has been an escalating tempo of attacks in Crimea and on the Crimean Peninsula, which was illegally annexed by Russia several years ago. We also this morning want to focus on what is becoming an escalating crisis at the southern border. Nearly 9,000 migrants crossing the border in just 24 hours as the surge continues to grow. There are overwhelming border towns like Eagle Pass, Texas, and the White House now sending hundreds of additional troops to help. We are seeing desperate scenes like the one you're seeing here. Families pulling toddlers, small children under razor wire there. The mayor of Eagle Pass has declared a state of emergency, he tells CNN. He pretty much feels abandoned by the federal government. And we want to show you some drone video of all the migrants detained. You see them standing in groups there at the border in Eagle Pass just yesterday. Our Ed Lavendera is there with his team live on the ground. Uh, what are you seeing at this hour? I know it is still quite dark there at Eagle Pass. It is uh, still, the sun has not quite come up yet, but uh, it is very quiet. By this time yesterday, we'd already seen uh, the, the beginning of what was going to be hundreds and hundreds of migrants crossing the river here in Eagle Pass. The mayor told us last night that he was told by federal authorities that uh, they are watching um, what could be more migrants coming into southern Mexico, numbers as high as 50 to 60,000, and where exactly all of those migrants might end up is not clear. And that's what many officials along the U.S. southern border are concerned about right now. Dozens of migrants stand in the Rio Grande, moments after forming a human chain to cross the river and through layers of razor wire trying to reach Eagle Pass, Texas. They tell me they're from Venezuela, among them a woman and her toddler. The danger for them is real. Two people, including a three-year-old boy, have drowned this week after being swept away in the river current. But after a nearly 3,000-mile journey, they accept the risk. How long are you going to wait here? You say they're going to wait here until they let them in? The migrants tell us they've been robbed and attacked on the Mexican side of the river. After hours of waiting, the migrants figure out a way to crawl under the razor wire. In a surreal scene, one man instantly apologized. They wanted to apologize for crossing illegally into the U.S. and uh, that they're begging and asking for mercy 
but to understand that they're coming from a country where they're persecuted um, and they feel like if they were to, were to be returned home, they would be killed. The mass influx of migrants is causing tension between federal and state authorities. Texas Governor Greg Abbott posted this video accusing border agents of cutting razor wire at an undisclosed location in Eagle Pass, allowing trapped migrants to turn themselves in. DHS officials refused to comment on the governor's allegation. On Wednesday, about 3,000 migrants crossed in Eagle Pass alone. It's something very strange. Never thought I was going to see something like that in Eagle Pass, Texas. The local sheriff tells us smugglers are preying on the hopes of these migrants, offering to move them to other cities if they can get into the U.S. I know this because we have smugglers from, coming from Houston, Florida, Austin, everywhere to pick up those immigrants. There's a connection there. Reasons for this surge vary, but migrants we spoke to say they've grown frustrated with the CBP-1 app that processes formal applications, many waiting months on the Mexican side for an appointment. These two men from Venezuela say they crossed illegally because they're desperate and have been waiting three months for the appointment to request asylum. It's a risk we had to take, he tells me. We know there's a chance we get deported, but it's in God's hands. And Sarah and Phil here this morning. Uh, we are not seeing, so far anyway, uh, large numbers of migrants crossing the river. And what many authorities and officials along the U.S. southern border are trying to figure out is whether or not this is a momentary surge, something that will pass, or is this a sign of a more sustained issue that they're going to have to deal with for the weeks and months ahead? Sarah and Phil? Yeah, no near-term fix, regardless of what happens next. Ed Lavendero, we appreciate your reporting. Thank you. Well, also this morning, a government shutdown. It is looking more likely than ever. There's the clock. You have the clock. Speaker Kevin McCarthy has sent Congress home for a long weekend, even though there's only eight days, 15 hours, 50 minutes, 27 seconds, left until the funding runs out. It comes after McCarthy suffered yet another major defeat on the House floor. Yet again. Hardline conservatives killed the GOP's defense spending bill as McCarthy struggles to contain a Republican rebellion. It's frustrating in the sense that I don't understand why anybody votes against bringing the idea and having the debate. And then you've got all the amendments if you don't like the bill. This is a whole new concept of individuals that just want to burn the whole place down. It, it doesn't work. You know, it's a speaker there saying that some of the members of his own party want to burn the place down. All right. It is a sign that Speaker McCarthy does not have enough votes, GOP votes, that is, to avoid the looming shutdown. Here's what we're hearing from Republicans on opposite sides of that divide. Listen. There will not be sufficient Republican votes for a continuing resolution. Now, if we've got some of these moderate Republicans who want to go and join up with the Democrats, they will be signing their own political death warrant and they will be handing their, it to their exec executioner. I am not going to be party to a shutdown. It does not serve a purpose. At the end of the day, uh, any final bill is going to be bipartisan. Uh, and if somebody doesn't realize that, uh, they're truly clueless. That Representative Lawler making very clear there that he's going to work with the Democrats. Just get this done because that is what's needed. CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox is live for us on Capitol Hill. Lauren, McCarthy's current plan to avoid a shutdown doesn't look like it is going to be put through. Yeah, yesterday leaders ditched their plan to try to pass a short-term spending bill with just Republican votes, and that plan was always going to be dead on arrival in the Senate. Now their effort and their pursuit, which is going to be a very long-shot effort, is that they are basically trying to pass 11 spending bills 
in eight days before a government shutdown. And these are bills that have imperiled the conference before. One of them is that DOD bill that you pointed to that failed on a procedural vote just yesterday. That was leadership's second attempt to try to move that legislation. They're gonna try to make some changes to that. And the House Rules Committee is gonna vote today to try to get this process started, trying to work through four spending bills, four individual one-year spending bills that they then hope to put on the floor next week. But lawmakers aren't expected back until Tuesday. That means that there is so much work left to do that they have to rally Republicans around bills that they have yet to have rallied them around to this point. And that is why this is such a long shot strategy. It also serves as a reminder that the Senate is not going to accept anything that they pass. So at this point, a government shutdown is not only likely, it is really unavoidable unless Republicans change course or unless there are enough Republicans to try to force this on the floor to try to work with Democrats. But again, there may not even be time for that effort. So right now you have two options. Both of them look like they couldn't avoid a shutdown. The only option at this point that could work is if Kevin McCarthy just put a bill on the floor that the Senate had already passed. And we know, of course, that He's imperiled, and he is facing a lot of pressure on his right flank. So doing so could likely mean he could lose his job, Sarah. Things are not looking up for them or for the American people, frankly. Lauren Fox, thank you so much for your reporting. So I think it's important to step back here. At this moment, the Office of Management and Budget is once again sending out their guidance to the agencies in preparation for a a shutdown. Why I say once again is because this is a process in place about seven days out from a shutdown. We now know exactly when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and the guidance that's going to go out. But this is different, and here's why. Lauren mentioned the procedural uh, vote that went down, and I don't want to get into arcane congressional procedure as much as I know Sarah Seidner would love for me to do that for the next three hours, but it underscores why this moment is different from past shutdowns, from past deadlocks, from past intraparty warfare for Republicans. A rule, essentially, is what guides the floor debate. The party that's in power holds the majority, always passes the rule. That's how you get to the floor to even talk about a bill. If you want to debate something, you have to go to the House floor with a rule. Everyone does it. Even if you oppose the bill, you support the rule. So what's happening right now for Speaker Kevin McCarthy and how imperiled is he in terms of his power? Well, let's take a look through history with a big shout out to Kristen Wilson, our Capitol Hill producer, who pulled all of this data together as we were all watching yesterday in awe to some degree as Kevin McCarthy lost his third vote on a rule. Again, the majority party almost always votes for the rule. How much do I mean almost always? Well, look through the past. Newt Gingrich, when he was speaker, he lost six rule votes. All right, that's three more than McCarthy. Maybe McCarthy's in a great place. Denny Hastert, he lost two. Then look at the next 15 to 16 years. Over the course of 15 to 16 years, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Speaker John Boehner, Speaker Paul Ryan, Speaker Nancy Pelosi lost zero rule votes. Again, it is almost pro forma that the party in power in the House of Representatives, their members vote for the rule and move them forward. That is what's different about right now. Now you say, all right, well, Gingrich lost six. Yes, Gingrich lost six over the course of his speakership. Kevin McCarthy? Kevin McCarthy has been in the speaker role since 2023. That's this year. He's been in power for less than a year. He's already lost three votes. And the last two he's lost on a rule have been on a defense spending bill, which in prior times was the lowest of low-hanging fruit for House Republicans. 
That's why this is a different moment. Sarah? Phil, can we just remind people that this is over funding the government for 31 days. We are not talking about a huge bill that's going to fund the government for the next year or so. We're talking about a tiny amount of time just to keep the government open, and they can't even pass a rule. We are in a mess, let's just say. Happy Friday. Thanks. (laughs) All right. Ron DeSantis telling voters under 65 that they should not get the COVID booster as he continues to attack the CDC. How good has CDC done, with all due respect, over the last few years? How many people trust CDC at this point? Dr. Mandy Cohen is the newest CDC director. We will have her respond to his allegations and talk about the CDC and what it plans to do to deal uh, with the uh, COVID issues coming up next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, a brand new CNN poll for you this morning. It's out on President Biden's re-election chances in the state of New Hampshire. It shows Biden with a 12-point average over Donald Trump in a hypothetical rematch. The numbers break down to 52% to 40%. That's a much wider margin than the national polls, which have shown the two are neck and neck in the race. Let's get straight to CNN political director David Chalian, who has more on this new poll. Uh, Where does Biden's approval rating stand with this particular latest poll? Yes, and remember, this is our first state-specific poll of the cycle. We are looking at the state of New Hampshire, a state that Donald Trump lost twice, narrowly to Hillary Clinton in 16, and more widely, uh, he lost to Biden three years ago. Joe Biden's approval rating in the state of New Hampshire, according to our new poll with the University of New Hampshire, is at 46%, 54% disapprove. This, too, just like you were saying about the horse race, is a better number than Joe Biden gets nationally. He hovers around 39 or 40%. So this is welcome news and may take this battleground state and tilt it a touch blue. David, as we've looked at the national polls, you know, you talk about how that's different than the 46% is higher than where he's kind of on average been at the head-to-head with Trump. Uh, is significantly better than what we've seen on average uh, nationally. Uh, What does that mean for the age question? Because that has contributed so heavily to kind of the national unease. Yeah, and listen, this is a factor, as you know, Phil, talking to your White House sources, this is not going away. They understand that. And we see it here in our New Hampshire poll. This is among likely Democratic primary voters. So just talking about Democratic primary voters here, what is your biggest concern about Joe Biden as a candidate? Open-ended question, not giving them options. 57% come back with his age. Uh, I mean, nothing else even comes close. 4% say health. You can add that in. You've got 6 in 10 likely Democratic voters who express that as a concern. Uh, Donald Trump has the, the outsized lead among the Republican candidates. But how is Biden stacking up against the GOP field that is also trying uh, to get a foothold in the race? Yeah. So despite the concerns that Democrats may have about Joe Biden's age, as you noted at the top in this head to head hypothetical matchup, Joe Biden is winning uh, over Donald Trump. He's beating him 52 percent to 40 percent, 8 percent unsure. Now, guys, even if the bulk of this 8 percent who are unsure, let's say they are more Republican leaning and come home to Trump, that's still a a significant victory here for Biden. And I'm going to tick through the other candidates and show you something very interesting. Biden beats all of them outside the margin of error. But take a look here. 50% told us Joe Biden when we tested him against Ron DeSantis, 33% for DeSantis. 
We didn't offer Donald Trump as an option, but 10% of respondents came back with Donald Trump. We see this time and again in the matchup against Ramaswamy, 49% Biden, 32% Ramaswamy. Again, Trump was not offered as an option. 9% of respondents come back with Trump. When you get even a less popular Republican, Trump's numbers go up. Pence only at 20%, Trump at 15%. Again, Biden winning. Same here with Tim Scott and Nikki Haley at 29%, Joe Biden at 45%. Trump at 13%. Here's what's key to understand. Only against Donald Trump is Joe Biden north of 50%. That's one important detail. But we don't talk enough about this. There are Republicans, and then there are Trump-specific Republicans. And if indeed someone other than Trump does emerge with the nomination, I think this is starting to show us the work they would need to do to bring those Trump-specific Republicans uh, into the fold. That could present a challenge to a nominee not named Trump if they were successful at defeating him. My happiness is when Chalian gets numbers back that demonstrate a theory of the case that he's had and he has new ways to show it. And you can <laughs> just feel the palpable enthusiasm because it's, it's such a great point and you want to try and figure out how, ways to do it. You just did. David Chalian, appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Well, joining us now to discuss CNN political analyst Natasha Alford and Axios national political reporter Alex Thompson. Um, Alex, I want to start with you because you've, you have written so much about the president, about his reelection campaign. Um, and you had a story, I think it was earlier this week, it might have been late last week, you're fairly prolific, but about how a poll after poll after poll has come out, uh, Biden's top advisors have tried to communicate to donors and others, look, man, this is a contrast race, this is a we have the issues race, and at some point it'll settle down, ignore the polls that show bad approval rating or show major concern about his age. And what I think is interesting about New Hampshire, particularly if you pair it with the special election and the state legislature that just happened where Dems overperformed in a major way, is you put them head to head and on a state level, maybe you got good numbers after all. Absolutely. This poll shows Biden's theory of the case or his inner circle. You know, a lot of nervous Democrats are communicating to the White House. Hey, we're seeing these numbers on age. We're seeing these things. And the White House's message and like people have been struck by the quiet confidence and some in some cases dismissiveness over these worries. Now, there were two numbers in this poll specifically that I want to point to that really show this. 52% of people in New Hampshire think that Joe Biden is not physically or mentally capable of doing the job right now. 60% said that they don't think he's physically or mentally capable to do the job in the second term. And yet, he is ahead by 12 points. This is, the, and that sort of shows maybe a dissatisfaction with the options. But the fact of the matter is, once Joe Biden is up against Donald Trump, those concerns go away. If there's a lesser of two evils, they, at the moment in New Hampshire, they choose Joe Biden. And I guess this is why you're hearing the messaging from them. It's like, chill out. It's going to be fine because when it comes head to head, they see Biden as the clear winner. Um, I want to ask you about that as a whole. You see what's happening in New Hampshire with this new polling how does that, what big difference does that make in the national scheme of things? Because the national numbers look very different. Right. I mean, New Hampshire is a sign of things to come. So it is important that, you know, if, if a candidate gains momentum in New Hampshire, that can affect other states. But I think it's, it's pretty consistent with national polls still. The, the point is that there is a divide, right? And Americans are saying, we don't want this race. We don't want this head to head. But if you force us to choose, these are some of the factors that emerge. And for Democratic leaning candidates or even moderates, it's this idea that 
you know, Biden may not be the age that we want, uh, but we trust the policies. We trust the character. If you look at that poll, the number about anger towards Donald Trump, right? There's a higher uh, percentage of anger towards Donald Trump and what his presidency would mean for democracy at large. So I think those are the factors that are playing into it. That was the number that jumped for me. In, yeah. in this version, of, we've already done the Republican New Hampshire poll that we rolled out earlier this week, but the negatives and the anger, I mean, it's above 60% for Trump. And New Hampshire is a state that Biden won, but it's always one of those states on the periphery for Republicans. They think maybe they can have a shot at it. Um, that's like a disqualifying number of people when it comes to Trump. And, and I think that's what you head into the next debate and everybody's trying to figure out, all right, can somebody rise? Can somebody break out? Um, and you can't help but look at that even when you contrast the amazing numbers that China was showing at the end there. It's, it's interesting because I think when you look at the numbers of uh, GOP supporters who still are leaning towards Donald Trump, some of the for them, they want the anger that he represents, right? They, they, they see this as retribution. They see this as another chance to uh, sort of make things right for this election that they believe was stolen, which we know it wasn't. Um, but, but I think it's very interesting that DeSantis has actually dropped. Right. Because his version of anger, his version of trying to be a Donald Trump 2.0 actually isn't resonating uh, with that GOP audience. And I think that speaks volumes. That's really interesting. Um, I want to talk about the debate going forward. We know Donald Trump is going to skip the second debate again and try to do that thing where he does some counter programming. Um, But Chris Christie, who has gone after him, probably is the, the candidate the GOP candidate who's the strongest against Trump when he comes out and talks about it. He's been on the attack. Uh, Let's listen to what he had to say about Donald Trump not taking part in yet another of these debates. If he had any guts, he'd get on the debate stage and he's got things to say about me. Stop hiding behind your social media site, your failed social media site, Donald, and start taking me on directly. Show up. Stop being a coward. Already then, uh, is that going to help him, like this kind of like direct attack? Is it going to help Chris Christie? Yes. Oh, well, you've seen his numbers, his negative numbers go up as a result of attacking Donald Trump. The fact of the matter is this is still Donald Trump's party. And Chris Christie was saying some of these same things before the first debate. Right. Donald Trump didn't show up. Donald Trump has already said that he is not showing up to the third debate. At this point in this race, unless somebody emerges, I would be shocked if Trump gets on a debate stage with his GOP rivals. You're also seeing that he is already pivoting his messaging to a general election message. He's already pivoting to the center. That's why he was fine, you know, sort of upsetting some of these anti-abortion groups this last week is because he's already saying six-week abortion ban is bad. He's already going to the middle. You also notice his counter-programming for the debate. Last time it was Tucker Carlson, a right-wing media figure. This time he's trying to take on Joe Biden over the UAW strike. He is trying to make this Trump versus Biden already. A debate is good for democracy, right? It's not necessarily good for Donald Trump at this moment. He has a lead, no need to to break it or have to be held accountable by pretty much everyone on that stage who's going to want to take shots at him. All right. Thank you, Natasha Bertrand and Alex Thompson. Appreciate you both. Well, Deion Sanders and the Colorado Buffaloes have stampeded their way through the college football world. They have a big test against Oregon this weekend. I think SC next weekend. Can Coach Prime pull off the upset? Who ready? I'm ready. Who ready? I'm ready. Who ready? I'm ready. Well, give me my darn theme music, dear oh. DJ. How good has CDC done, with all due respect, over the last few years? How many people trust CDC at this point? I was in the trenches during COVID. They were citing 
flimsy studies saying that masks will stop COVID. One of the things that I said is when I come in, we're going to have a reckoning about all these COVID policies. Those are words spoken this week by Republican presidential candidate and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. During the height of the pandemic, Americans' trust in the CDD slipped compared to other government agencies as changing science around the coronavirus led to shifting CDC guidelines. In 2002, a Kaiser Family Foundation poll found more than a quarter of Americans still don't trust the agency to provide reliable information about COVID vaccines. Even the former CDC director said this about the CDC's COVID response, quote, to be frank, we are responsible for some pretty dramatic, pretty public mistakes from testing to data to communications. And while most Americans have moved on from COVID, if you look at the numbers, the virus, of course, is still here. Hospitalizations have been on the rise since July, with weekly admissions now more than triple what they were just two months ago. Joining us now for her very first CNN interview, the new CDC director, Dr. Mandy Cohen. Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I want to start with, we heard from Ron DeSantis. He has basically told people that 65 and older not to get the booster shot. What do you make of his comments? Well, first, Sarah, thanks for having me on. I want to make sure that Americans know that last week the CDC did recommend an updated COVID vaccine for everyone over the age of six months. Um, these are vaccines that we've given out 600 million of these doses. We've saved so many lives. These vaccines are safe. They're effective. We want to make sure folks protect themselves going into the fall and winter season when we know we're going to see more COVID circulating. We've seen a lot of misinformation, <clears throat> uh, disinformation and conspiracy theories on online, especially about the vaccines. And now you have a governor who is pushing some of this, saying that Floridians are being used as guinea pigs and he's just not going to allow it. What is your response to his statement? Well, first, I want folks to know that these vaccines have been thoroughly and independently reviewed, both by the FDA and CDC experts. I, but, you know, I'm not just a CDC director. I'm also a mom and a wife and a daughter. I wouldn't recommend something for the American people. I wouldn't recommend for my own family. My daughters, who are 9 and 11, I plan to have them get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated. My husband, of course, my parents, who are over 65, are at the highest risk, certainly want them to get protected. But really, unfortunately, COVID is still here with us. I know we all wish it would be gone, but it is here with us. But the good news is we have tools that are safe and effective to protect ourselves. It is here with us and it is still taking lives. I do want to talk to you about uh, some of the issues that the CDC is facing because trust is really important for people to, to go forward and, and do these things like get their booster shots. There were several issues. There was an initial faulty COVID test. There was lengthy school shutdowns that a lot of people ra railed against, confusing or inaccurate guidelines lines on, you know, whether or not a mask is necessary. And then that changed to, yes, wear a mask. But then it was like, what kind of mask should you wear? And all of those guidelines change. What do you think the biggest mistake of the CDC was and how do you plan to fix it? Well, look, we went through a historic event, um, right? This was a crisis that we hadn't been through before. Certainly a lot of lessons learned. I was leading the state of North Carolina along with Governor Roy Cooper there through the pandemic. We were certainly learning a lot and things evolved over time. What I want to do as CDC director is make sure that we are building trust, that we are being transparent, we're communicating clearly to make sure that we're doing good work for the American people, that they have common sense solutions to protect themselves. Um, and that's what I'm focused on.
I want to ask you about the recent uptick because we have seen the numbers uh, go up over the last month or so. With that recent uptick, there are several school districts that are now requiring masks once again. Is that a good policy? Is that something that, that should be happening that we go back to masking at this point? You know, we're in a different place than we were before. We're outside of the emergency, but COVID is still with us. And we know that we have tools to protect us. We've been talking about vaccines being one, and I hope everyone gets an updated vaccine. But we have others, testing, treatment, and other common sense solutions. And yes, mask, masking is one of those um, solutions that folks could choose to use to protect themselves from this virus. It's important to know your own risk. Are you around folks who are older or who have underlying conditions? Then we need to use more layers of protection. The fact is we have tools, we need to use them, and we're going to keep talking about the ways folks can protect themselves. Do you think that this is a good recommendation that schools should be masking now? As I said, there are several schools, I think Maryland, one of them, uh, where they're saying, okay, now you have to mask again. Well, look, we want folks to be reacting to what they're seeing on the ground in their community and making sure that they're protecting themselves. We want folks to know that there are tools that they can use, um, but there are, are more things than masks. Remember, ventilation, don't forget your vaccine, wash your hands, stay home when you're sick. These are layers of tools that we have right now, and we want to just empower folks to use those tools and, and support them in any way we can. I do want to ask you about the, the vaccines and how well, I mean, how well do they work and do they actually help reduce transmissions of the virus at all, this latest uh, um, vaccine? Yes. So we, we know that these vaccines are safe and they're effective at preventing the worst of what COVID can, can bring to you. And that is putting you in the hospital or dying. Unfortunately, we're still seeing hundreds of people over 65 dying each week with COVID. We, we have about 20,000 folks in the hospital right now with COVID. Um, so what the vaccine can do is protect you from the worst of what COVID is. But remember, the vaccine, early data is showing us it can also prevent you from getting long COVID. It decreases your risk of getting long COVID, which is extended symptoms from that COVID virus. So yes, protecting from the worst, but also protecting you from potential long-term symptoms from this virus, even if you have a mild case. Um, I can't help but tell you this story. I was in uh, several hospitals at the height of, of this uh, mm -hmm. pandemic. And one of the things I heard from someone in the hospital, from one of the nurses, they said, someone came in here, they had COVID, it was really, really bad, they couldn't breathe. And the person's wife says, don't you dare give them that vaccine. It is dangerous, it is mm -hmm. deadly. This is one of those mm -hmm. big issues, this anti-vaccine sentiment. Do you have a specific plan to try and combat it? And how worried are you about a rise in this anti-vaccine sentiment? Well, it's really important that we are communicating with folks and having longer conversations to make sure that we're addressing people's questions, that they understand the data that we, we see. It's why I'm sharing personally what I would recommend for my own family in terms of vaccination. I know folks want to be healthy, that they want their families to be safe. Um, so we're just going to keep communicating about the good information that we know, the scientific information that we're seeing. We want to communicate as transparently as we can and answer folks' questions. We encourage folks to you know, visit cdc.gov and get their questions answered and engage with your doctor, um, with a nurse practitioner. Ask good questions. Um, and make sure you're using tools to protect yourself. Dr. Mandy Cohen, congratulations. You are the new CDC director. Lots of work to be done. Thank you so much for answering our questions here on CNN This Morning. Thanks for having me, Sarah.
Well, Deion Sanders, they call him prime. Uh, he's a thing. Prime you time. may have noticed. He's completely revamped the Colorado Buffaloes football team, already tripling their win total from last year. It's three weeks into the season, but can the Buffs and Dion pull off their biggest win of the year this Saturday against Oregon? Stay with us. We have a big day of college football tomorrow. Go Bucks! A game a lot of people will be watching, though. Deion Sanders and the Colorado Buffaloes will be taking on Oregon. Coach Prime has taken college football by storm, making Colorado must-see TV. Andy Scholes joins us now. Andy, this is the biggest story in the sports world, bar none. Yeah. It was expected to turn around Colorado at some point, but I don't really know many people at all who saw it happening this fast. Yeah, I mean, Phil, Sarah, I mean, this has just been incredible what we've witnessed so far from Coach Prime. You know, Colorado, it's gone from winning one game and being the worst team in all of the Power Five conferences last season to undefeated, ranked 19th in the country, and really just the talk of college football this year. And in one offseason, Deion Sanders, you know, he's orchestrated one of the biggest turnarounds the sport has ever seen, and he did it by just being the same prime time we've known for years. Who ready? I'm ready? Who ready? I'm ready. Who ready? I'm ready. Well, give me my darn theme music there, oh. DJ. The Colorado Buffaloes have taken college football by storm this season, thanks to one man, Coach Prime. Here we come to get you. Let's go. After three seasons coaching HBCU Jackson State, Deion Sanders instantly transforming Colorado into the most entertaining team in college football, and he did it by being unapologetically himself. I make a difference. I truly make a difference. I make folks nervous, man. I, I get folks moving in their seat. I get folks twirling their thumbs. I get them thinking and second-guessing themselves. First thing Coach Prime did after getting the job, he told all the players he inherited to leave. I want y'all to get ready to go ahead and jump in that portal. Coach Prime overhauling the Buffaloes roster, bringing in 86 new players this season. And critics said his in-your-face, brutally honest method would never work. Everything Dion has been doing has been putting a target on his team's back. I wouldn't like Dion and, and you know, told, give guys a bunch of pink slips. For all the hoopla and all of the hype uh, going into the offseason with Dion Sanders in Colorado, it does not mask the fact that they don't have any players on that roster. But Sanders continues to prove them wrong. Do you believe in that? And Coach Prime has completely changed Colorado's culture, bringing unprecedented excitement. I'm Peggy. Peggy, how you Are doing? you Prime? That's what they call Do me. Do I call you that or? No, no, they call me anything yeah. anymore. Good. <laughs> oh, well, how about good looking? Even 98-year-old Colorado superfan Peggy Copham, who has rarely missed a game since 1940, can't believe what Coach Prime has brought to Boulder. It's absolutely unbelievable, all this attention that one man has brought to this town, this program. For the first time ever, Colorado has completely sold out of tickets, and the school says merchandise sales are up 819% from last season. Rapper Lil Wayne led the team out of the tunnel before last week's thrilling win over rival Colorado State. That was after The Rock was in attendance as Boulder hosted ESPN's College Game Day. He's changing the face of college football, and he's doing it his way. But he's also doing it in a way that, and this is, this is the hard part, that is galvanizing not only a town mm. in Boulder, Colorado, yep. but also galvanizing an entire country. Yeah. Wow. You make me cry, man. <laughs> All recruits, did you hear? <laughs> 
Two recruits that have helped Coach Prime's instant success in the Rockies are two of his sons. Shador is the team's star quarterback. Shiloh, a defensive back who wears dad's iconic number 21. I believe! Fans have known Deion Sanders for decades as one of the best athletes ever, but is he now the best coach in college football? Let me see a mirror so I can look at him. <laughs> you feel that? What? You think I'm going to sit up here and tell you somebody else? You think that's the way I operate? That somebody else got that on me? Yeah, yeah, Colorado 21-point underdogs tomorrow afternoon as they play at 10th-ranked Oregon. The Ducks, they're scoring uh, 58 points per game so far this season. But I tell you what, Phil and Sarah, you know, if Coach Prime can somehow pull off that upset, I mean, it would be hard to argue that he is the best. <laughs> Andy, what would be your theme music exactly? I'm going to ask you yours, so get ready. Yep. What would be your theme music, Andy Scholes? Oh, me? I don't know. It wouldn't be as cool as Dion's, though. I promise you that. <laughs> um, Andy, I thought you had set up I Lil mean... Wayne was going to come into the studio at the end. That was kind of what I had in my yeah, head. Yeah, he was he was booked, actually, oh, already for this right. morning. Well, when so. they beat Oregon, <laughs> then he'll come in. That's great. Come. That's cool. Andy's got us, man. Andy's got <laughs> yeah. us. I appreciate it, buddy. Great Thank story. you. All right. All right. I had Rupert Murdoch stepping down as a chairman of Fox and News Corp. A look at just how powerful his influence in Fox News has been on Republican voters, that just ahead. One of the world's most influential media moguls is calling it quits. 92-year-old Rupert Murdoch, who built and oversaw a powerful right-wing news empire, announced that he will step down as chairman of Fox and News Corp, passing the torch to his eldest son, Lachlan, who will become the sole chairman of both companies. But is Fox's grip on the Republican Party as powerful as it once was. Joining us now, CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton. Harry, give me the number. All right, this morning's number is two, because Donald Trump has skipped or will skip two Republican debates on either Fox News or Fox Business. He don't care about Fox News and Fox Business. Why is that? Well, take a look here. News source GOP voters turn to most. 74% say not Fox News. Now, the plurality leader is Fox News at 26%. But the fact is, most Republicans are, in fact, not tuning to Fox News as its main news source. Other follow-ups, social media, 12 percent, broadcast networks, 11 percent. But I think that this is a key number to keep in mind going forward. 74 percent of Republican likely voters say the news source they turn to most is not Fox News. But I guess the other question to flip that is, does Fox News need Donald Trump? Yes, this is what I would say is absolutely Fox News needs Donald Trump more than Donald Trump needs Fox News. Why is that? Fox News GOP voters love Trump. His favorable rating amongst them, 85%. Look at the primary vote share he's getting with them nationally. The vast majority, 60% are going for him, which of course is very different from what we saw on the other slide, which was the vast majority of GOP uh, voters are not in fact tuning into Fox News as their main news source. But I will note this. All right. We had a New Hampshire poll. You spoke about it earlier today. Yeah. We covered the Republican primary results yesterday. Trump's primary vote share in New Hampshire by media usage. Overall, it's 39 percent. You see here, Fox News, he gets 43 percent of that vote. But take a look. This is, Fox News is not where the biggest Trumpies are tuning in. They're tuning into Newsmax. Look at that. 76 percent. And take a look here. Joe Rogan at 65 percent. So the fact is we have a f much more fractured news landscape that Republicans are tuning into. And the biggest fans of Trump are saying, you know, what? Fox News is fine, but we prefer to go to another source. Wow. Mm -hmm. Harry Enton, thank you so much for all of those numbers. Thanks, so, you. Thanks, buddy.
All right, this week CNN Hero watched as her teenage son, Nick, lost his battle to cancer. The one bright spot, though, during his treatment was his Make-A-Wish trip to Hawaii. When Nick found out that kids can age out of Make-A-Wish, he was devastated. The night before he passed away, though, he asked his mom to make sure older kids can still get their wish. So this mom has dedicated her life to granting once-in-a-lifetime experiences to young adult cancer fighters ages 18 to 24. For her, it's all about bringing a little bit of joy. Meet Kelly Rachel Bailey. Lamp is in place. Are we all ready? Guess what, Abby? Come on out here if you can. Congratulations! When I get to see somebody saying, my wish was granted. You are gonna go to Hawaii! Sometimes there's tears, sometimes there's joys, there's hoots and hollers. Did we surprise you? We really did. <laughs> but for me, it's Nick smiling down and saying, thank you, Mom. Thank you, Mom. My health has been getting worse, so this is just everything to me. To learn more about Kelly's work and watch as one young woman gets her wish to go to a Taylor Swift concert, go to CNNHeroes.com. That's it for us. Happy Friday. Have a great weekend. CNN News Central continues with all of the news right after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.